out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Newtown Neurotics, because I recently spoke to their songwriter, singer, guitarist. It's the one and only Steve Druitt to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all that other groovy stuff. But also which is very exciting. There is a film that has just been made about the band titled Kick Out, the Newtown Neurotic Story. That's, um, yes, been played in various arty cinemas around the country and I think there was a Q&A recently. Hopefully will be more available next year. How? I don't know. But anyway, this is the interview. So after several minutes of interest and but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was both the formative years and also how the film came about. Steve, tell us everything. Tell us now. Um, well, it come about it come about in a roundabout way, really, because we wasn't actually uh, thinking about uh, a video that told our story. Um, we hadn't really spent um, much time thinking about the journey that we had uh, travelled along over the years. Um, what we were we were aware of was that we 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 done a lot of uh, playing live, uh, but didn't really engage ourselves in, um, in in having videos of any um, uh, any videos really at all. Um, there was, as you can you see in the, in the uh, in the film, there is a video of us playing when the on runs out very early on, very early VHS seventies um, palette color type um uh, video and and then over the years um we've uh, what's been what's gone up online is people recording uh, gigs of ours and placing them online so we really hadn't done any any uh, rock videos as such um and we were made aware of luke baker um uh, who comes from harlow um he's, he's not living in harlow now but he he was at the time so we met up with him for a drink in our club at the square which was a still existed at that time yes and um and we said to him would you be interested in doing a rock video for us because we knew we were underrepresented uh on youtube for that sort of thing um and uh during the conversation he he, he, he didn't seem to be particularly interested in doing that. Um, what he did was he just twisted the conversation around slightly and said, I'd much rather do a documentary about you rather than doing a rock video. And funny enough, at the time, I was so intent on getting us represented with a decent rock video that it comes a bit of disappointment that he wasn't interested in that and that he wanted to do a film about the band um but uh after talking about it for a while i mean i i you know i'd rather he did something so even if he wasn't interested in doing the rock video aspect of it i thought well okay then well, let's do the documentary so um once we had agreed that we'd all be interested in doing that uh we got underway with it and um uh I hadn't really pre, you know, thought about it that much, but it turned out that I had a lot of material at home that could be used 
um, to help uh, tell our story. Yes. And then the the um, what happened in uh, in in Britain from 1979 onwards after Margaret Thatcher came to power um, was part of the story as well. So it's a mixture of those two sources. And then we managed to track down some very rare footage of, of the band because we were doing this documentary. And um, and that really added a lot of um, uh, of colour to it. And it also felt, in, uh, uh, I felt that we'd enriched ourselves doing the documentary because otherwise we would never have found that rare footage. And uh, uh, we just managed to come across, um, you know, using George, our uh, former interpreter in East Germany, making contact with him after many years of not um, having any any meeting with him or, or conversation or anything. Um, he then um, located, uh, helped us locate um, some really good footage of us playing in East Germany that yes. brought us over the television there. Um, and he even managed to uh, to to come up with a, a little bit of footage of me playing solo in um, Pyongyang because I, I I spent uh, three weeks in in North Korea in the early nineties, and uh, that's not in the film because it isn't part of the neurotics story, as it were. Um, but it just uh, just meant that the documentary had led me to actually come across footage that I would never have pursued and would probably have got lost forever uh, if we hadn't done it. So Yes, I know. This is this is fantastic. I know, because part of the story starts in the only, only sort of, what is it, 44 years ago in the late 70s, and then you have the footage from the 90s, which is 30 years ago. So archiving, I find, archiving's become the new rock and roll, really, isn't it? Because... Because what your your band tells an amazing narrative and story, doesn't it? That sort of has so many different little sort of avenues and cul-de-sacs that go down. So just roughly, because it's always curious, when when was this kind of initial idea? Was it four, five years ago? Well, for the documentary. Yes. Um uh well it was it was a couple of years before lockdown. Um, right. the I mean we the, the documentary was ready to go. Um uh, the, the documentary is ready to go um, uh, be premiered at least um, uh, just as the fir first lockdown occurred so it, it sort of ruined our plans to launch the film actually everything went completely um, uh, went completely tits up at that point um, the plan that we had was that we put a lot of work into this documentary and that it would be um, uh, ready to... We, we got to the point where it was ready to be premiered, close to, to where it was ready to be premiered. And um, uh, and then the way that we saw it, there was a soundtrack album tied in with that, which was it's called Kick Out, which is all the... Uh, most of the music that is heard in the... Uh, uh, the documentary plus more. Um, we have this final album ready to go uh, to tie in with it. Um, and then um, they uh, then whilst that was happening, we were going to be um, focusing. Well, whilst that was 
um, doing the rounds, as it were, uh, and we were promoting that. In between, we'd be um, uh, we'd be getting some ideas for new material together. So that it would go documentary, tie-in album, then new material, and then um, uh, and uh, and then uh, promotion of that. So yes. went in sequence. But the way it turned out in the end was that the documentary got put on hold because of the uh, because of lockdown, um, and and then we we basically wrote the new material during lockdown remotely. Um, the three of us swapped files back and forth and, and demoed the whole thing without having seen without having met each other for a couple of years. We just worked on the material in the background. And then once lockdown was finished, we come out of, of hiding, as it were, and went into the studio proper to um, to work on the material we demoed uh, in lockdown. So the, the kit, we weren't out and about um, promoting either the uh, documentary nor the kick-out album. And then we went in and uh, into the studio, recorded and released a new album, which um, the public got to experience before the documentary. So it was all the wrong way around. And um, uh, the idea of, of the documentary raised in our profile and then that race profile, we would then have a new album uh, to match that race profile um, uh, didn't really happen. And, and the other thing that that that, um, that we found is that you know that uh, on top of um, austerity and uh, and lockdown on and, and that uh, fear of for people uh, coming out that they may, may catch COVID at gigs, it sort of really made the whole rock and roll touring experience more difficult. So um, we got. Um, the documentary come out uh, after the new material, and in the meantime, we were touring. We toured the uh, uh, the new album uh, in an environment where audiences have been dissipated or decimated, rather, either because clubs have closed down because they went bust during the pandemic, uh, or audiences were rather reluctant to come out because they feared catching COVID. So it's been a really uh, much more difficult time um, to be being creative during this period than we we envisaged. But, you know, um, the pandemic knocked so many things for six and killed a lot of people. So um, I can't really complain about it. It's just one of those challenges in life that um, get, you know, thrown thrown in front of you and then you have to deal with it as best you can yes that is that is very tricky period isn't it for creative people to do i mean the film is an amazing sort of piece of work and because one of the things that often people mention during that period the 70s and 80s you know was that very few people took cameras or filmed gigs there was very little footage but luckily with this film you managed to sort of get quite a few fantastic shots of the band photographs but there's so many really good interviews with yourself with uh, various other members of the band and also people like 
Phil Jupiter's and also um, Billy Bragg. So it, it sort of adds to that narrative. And then your experience of East Germany, East Germany as well, and that punk scene. So the the the, the story does have a great, you know, it does flow beautifully from yeah. from start yeah, to exactly. finish. So that's good. But what I've also enjoyed just at the very beginning of of kind of your story is that kind of period in the seventies where you were you were going to festivals, and obviously that period of the mid-70s when you were probably seeing Hawkwind at Stonehenge or Reading or whatever, you know, you at that point you weren't that political, were you? No, not not in the traditional sense, but I, I had got, I, I think the word is active, activism. I was inspired by activism, not necessarily uh, party politics. I mean, used to go to the Windsor Free Festivals and, and um, we used to do it... Uh, you know, despite the festival having to, well, felt almost like it was um, surrounded by police. Uh, the police were, were very anti the Windsor Free Festival and actually going, uh, playing there or actually going to it um, uh, was uh, an act of rebellion in a sense because um, there was always this possibility that they would plant drugs on you and arrest you or harass you and the final one that i went to turned into a riot like the the uh um the travelers riots later on with the, oh, the beanfield the great battle of the beanfield moment one of those the last winter free festival that i went to it was broken up in much the same way and ended up with a police riot across the the field and uh, tents being pulled up and smashed up and uh and people being carted off and arrested and cut it off and arrested. But yes. yeah. Um, and also, just to say about that Windsor Free Festival, this was what the one that Wally, was it Wally Hope? Was he one of the main organizers and people like Penny from Crass? They yeah, were what yeah. well, they were quite connected to it. Because I know there's the story that Penny tells of, you know, that what Wally being sort of harassed by the police and then dying in very suspicious circumstances. Yeah, um, it, yeah, I think it was. I mean, it, it's very political. It was very political in um, in a, uh, I suppose, a, an anarchist sense. Um, it wasn't about um, raising profile for certain injustice and then uh, encouraging people to go out and vote to change it. It was very much uh, um, uh, trying to um, to put, you know trying to go to, onto a, uh, a piece of land that was uh, meant to be available for people to congregate, a people's right to to assemble, basically, and play music and, and enjoy, you know, uh, enjoy a, a free festival, basically. And uh, the police were trying to stop us from, from uh, meeting there. Um, and we were trying to fight for our right of assembly. And there was a lot of... Um, anarchistic material going around and, and various things about um uh it's counterculture stuff so yes. I, I really seeked in counterculture stuff and it did from those roots it did then uh fire a, um an element in me that wanted to be involved with the counterculture um and that's why I think that uh, when punk exploded, I, I was really up for it. Uh, it was an extension of, of me. And I 
felt quite naturally um, able to go from having, you know, sort of hippie garb and long hair um, to then having no hair and leather jackets and, and, and that sort of thing. I mean, it was um, the youth culture was changing every five minutes in the in the seventies, and yes. I I just felt that the the counterculture part of, of my makeup. Uh, was really intrigued by punk, and that is where I felt I needed to um, to evolve into. Like everyone else was going through a lot of changes in. Um, bearing in mind that I hadn't even picked up a guitar at this point, I mean, I felt a very, very strong sense of wanting to uh, not um, follow the, the norm, not, not uh, accept the status quo, but to push for change. Because, you know, if growing up is anything, it's about changes. And, you know, once you accept that you are going through changes by going through teenage years and into younger adulthood, there was, well, for me anyway, I felt like I wanted to see other changes. I wanted to see injustices that were around before um, I become aware of them. I wanted to see them change. I wanted to to be involved with a movement that strove towards making life better for their fellow human beings. Yes, and then and then you know the emphasis. One of the emphasis in the film is is kind of the seventy nine election where Margaret Thatcher gets in, and then it's kind of a huge change in our sort of decade really isn't it because then there's the she's very unpopular at the beginning and and almost has a vote of no confidence and then the Falkland war comes you know she you know suddenly appears kind of like victorious has this kind of incredible suddenly confidence and ego and then there's the the, the minor strike which you bring in there I mean there's also Greenham Common and then a bit later on there's Red Wedge and and Southern other you know political movements so your your timing with the band is kind of perfect isn't it at that stage because you you're there when when the sort of the timing is absolutely bang on really because as as you can see from the uh neurotics earlier material we used to uh we we used to sing about stuff and if it was political it's with a small p um i i was being you know it's been more um um, I don't know what you would call it. I, I was trying to sort of, I was trying to find my way into telling stories with my music, but not necessarily politically. So uh, I was talking about a more abstract things, but just at the you know, in 1980, when the oil runs out, was um, uh, was a, a a song, I suppose that was leading me into politics. Um, but it was it was um you know it was about uh the um uh the oil crisis in the mid 1970s um and i uh, realized that that was um a big issue and it made me realize just how much our world um uh relied on oil to make to to um grease the world the wheels of capitalism um, and that, um, as uh, Three Days of the Condor, a film with Robert Redford in, pointed out within it, is that um, that if that oil stops, the society collapses. So therefore, 
there was a lot of um as it is to still uh, uh, today um politics is all underlined by our reliance on saudi arabia or, or the oil fields of iraq um any country that's got oil in it uh, uh, is immediately uh corrupted by um by the politics of of um of oil production and oil consumption um and so when the oil runs out was my first realization of uh, the fact that without that um society collapses and therefore uh, the politics of the western world well the politics of the world really is all geared around the flow of that oil and if that oil stops flowing then you know basically we'd be fucked um but just at that time just at that time when i was leaning in towards a more political sphere of songwriting uh i, I um had a chance meeting with attila the stockbroker yes and he was more politically aligned and more focused on on um you know he'd been he'd been doing student politics for quite a long time and was well versed in left-wing politics um whereas i had i had some grounding in that but actually his was more razor razor sharp focus and mine a little bit more hazy yes. and he mentions he mentions that in the film doesn't he he's kind of his his character which is this very sort of absolute confident you know um ability to be yeah not have any self-doubt and and sort of compared him a little compared himself a little bit to you and then the influence he had on your songwriting sounded like quite a good a good little bit of mentoring or tutoring did you did you feel that Attila was quite important for your next phase of songwriting no it didn't really occur to me I was too I was too close to it all really I mean what what basically what happened was that um that uh that Attila had gone off to Belgium to live. Uh, it, 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 it left the country because um, there was a lot of heat on him from right-wing groups and for uh, various reasons he decided he'd be better off out of the country. And he set himself up in Brussels for a, a couple of years. And then he come back to, to Britain and, um, and he sort of said, you know, I think my time in Brussels is coming to an end. And I said, I just got a flat at that time. And I said, um, well, I could put you up for a couple of days while you sort yourself out. And he said, brilliant, that'd be great. So he moved into the flat, which I just moved into myself. Um, and then he stayed for nearly 10 years. So it wasn't <laughs> just a couple of days. Um, so once what well, he, he went back to Belgium and collected his stuff and then come back to Britain again and then he moved into the flat with me and then we um then we had a you know sort of like a a friendship in which I was I was uh too close to it to see the 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 course of the uh of the relationship and how it was going and um of course it it, it was immensely um uh in it, 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 it uh, um influenced me immensely not just because of the things that um attila pointed out and uh, and i agreed with but actually we had quite a lot of, of arguments disagreeing about politics as well so 
it was a yeah, our relationship encouraged some sort of in, you know to a certain extent in, uh, intellectual rigor in that nothing was ever taken just for granted if there was an idea that one or uh, either one of us had that um might not stand up to to the cold light of day we would know it because one of us would would question that one of the things is that um Attila the stockbroker pretty soon or pretty quickly started on a career of music of of, of poetry and music which meant that he stopped doing any he stopped having any idea of of going out and getting a full-time job so he sort of left the world of work and then become a uh, uh, a defender of uh, of the working class whereas i um, still had to hold down a, a very labour-intensive physical job five days a week. Um, and we used to have a lot of arguments over uh, how we saw um, politics regarding the working-class struggle and how I would say the working-class people that I work with, um, how they failed to respond to the... Um, uh, some of the things that Attila would say. So I, I would like to say that I, I am working class and I work with working class people all the time. And I can tell you, they have no idea about what you're going on about. The message is certainly not getting through to them. Mm. And they are more influenced by right-wing newspapers like the Daily Mail and the Sun. Uh, and that is where the politics, they get their politics from. from. Um, they get it, uh, without actually realising it, they they are what they think they're doing is buying a newspaper and reading about events happening in Britain and the world. But actually, what they were being exposed to was politically political doctrine of of right wing doctrine, and that's how they got their politics. Whereas Attila the stockbroker was, uh, and myself at that point, we were going out and sort of preaching to the converted we were aware of that and we always had conversations about how we could reach the ordinary ordinary working people with the ideas that we knew um were uh um were, were the sort of thing the working class actually would be would benefit from rather than being um sort of uh, tools of 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 uh, right wing media. Yes. Uh, so we would argue about that, and I would take you know I'd take the to Attila sometimes. You know, that is totally ridiculous, John. Where I work, they wouldn't they wouldn't give that the time of day. They have no idea what you're talking about. You know. So we had some pretty good conversations about how to to uh, try and get our our ideas across. Um, and not be in a a dead end of um, preaching to the converted. And that's exactly why later on, um, Attila would uh, release stuff uh, on uh, Oi albums uh, that Gary Busher would uh, quite often put together with loads of Oi bands on. Um, uh, a, um, uh, and he, yes. he would... He, he would have stuff on there because he wanted he didn't want to be seen as as um 
doing gigs to the middle classes or to uh, to students. He wanted to be able to say that um, what he believes in and the the the, the, the intellectualism, uh, you know, that he holds uh, over, um, you know, his um, perception of politics in Britain um, are held up to 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 be practical because he speaks to the working class about these things through through um, doing gigs for various different types of audiences, including um, uh, oil audiences. Yes, brave man. Yes, he mentioned he mentions his kind of a track on one of those compilations, and um, yes, how many people have been influenced, but still not enough to particularly change the power of um who's in who's in number 10 which is um always interesting it's a great debate isn't it does does music because they were you know just skipping slightly forward in the 80s there was the kind of i don't know red wedge movement and there was that idea that if you know the youth were galvanized and all voted then you know the election would turn out differently and obviously we all realize it just didn't make any difference at all which is um one of those things academics have uh, pondered many for many decades and um still still sort of get slightly confused they ponder, they ponder in the wrong places <laughs> they do they ponder they ponder in places that isn't going to make any difference ponder in, in they ponder in the backwaters they, uh, in, in, not, in in insignificant areas which is like yes like you said it is in my mind it's quite simple and it's not talked about enough i mean it's all, all about um you know, sort of um, what people believe in, and 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 uh, and the various um, uh, various sort of prime ministers and things we've had. But the the whole journey, which which you see unfold in the kickout film that we've been down, starts from a key moment, and that is, I'm not sure which one was first, but. Margaret Thatcher comes to power, and round about the same time, she allowed Rupert Murdoch to have a greater slice of media ownership, which previously you couldn't have. Um, Rupert Mur Murdoch couldn't have the grip over the uh, over media under the rules that they that were there before Margaret Thatcher come to power, and after she come to power, she enabled him to have uh, to be able to have a, a more powerful grip on uh, Britain's media. From that point on, the whole of the whole of culture, society, politics has all been shaped by by um, millionaires and right wingers. Um, and even when there is a sort of left wing party, the Labour Party um, gets the levers of power and, and, and you have a prime minister um, Tony Blair come in um, to usher in a more left-wing politics. Um, it's pandering to the right wing most of the time. And in fact, if you look at it, every time the Tories get in, it drags society over to the fur furthest right it can get it to. And then when Labour come in, they pull it back a little bit. And then we've the Tories get back in again, they drag it enormously over to the right even more. And that, from 1979 to now, has dragged politics and the way we perceive uh, politics in this country 
uh, so far to the right that it's now eaten itself. You know, it is it is corrupt. It's got no valid ideas for the uh, for the people of, of of this country or for the UK. It's completely and utterly intellectually exhausted. It's it is just now a um, uh, right wing dogma. That's all it is. It's it's uh, it's a dictatorship waiting to happen. And all of that has been done because the prism in which we see ourselves has been through a right-wing lens. The working class, anybody who works in, in, the, uh, in the UK, sees themselves as a distorted prism. And it's, it's always taken away the obvious um, away from people generally, and that is why on earth do you believe that these people have your best interests at heart? Why on earth do you allow people who so obviously line the pockets of their own class and undermine anything to do with how ordinary people live and work in this country? How do they get voted in every time? And this is why we're still saying, how on earth did Boris Johnson get voted in as prime minister? How on earth did we allow um, our public services to be run down to next to nothing? How on earth did we allow schools to be crumbling through, through concrete cancer? How on earth is there nothing here to actually save us when we have a pandemic apart from uh, over-entitled idiots? And it all comes back down in the end to 1979, Margaret Thatcher, Rupert Murdoch. That is it. You see, the, the media is a very, very strong thing. I mean, we, we spend most of our uh, downtime sort of um, soaking up TV shows and films and all sorts of stuff. It is really, really part of everything we do in our lives. And then on top of that, the vision that we get back of ourselves through the media and through political political um, discourse, which is weighted so heavily towards the right, is that we see ourselves as incapable of actually expressing ordinary working class people's uh, um, uh, aspirations so we can fight, stand up and fight for ourselves and fight for what everybody can quite clearly see now and that is we need to have a state that is able to, to defend us when we have things like pandemics we need, we need a, a health service that is, is, is sophisticated and um, well funded to be able to work during pandemics and to look after the, after the nation state through the better times as well. Because capitalists just fail to realise that if they haven't got a workforce that they can rely on, then, um, then they can't make their millions. So we have to say, look, the, the NHS needs to be properly funded, needs to look after people, it needs to keep their health as the number one priority 
for community, for society, and for them to be able to do the work that everybody relies on. And um, and and you know, that, uh, what about the public services? What about the infrastructure of this country? Schools are falling down. Well, who would guess that, eh? You know, schools need to be proper, fu properly funded because, again, it's it's people getting qualifications and, and being educated that enables this country to make its impression of the world, to be able to say, you know, we're, we've got a lot to offer in this country. If you start un underfunding education, then we're going to have nothing that anybody can actually say uh, that Britain stands head and shoulders over everybody else. Um, and and how does how does uh, uh, the infrastructure infrastructure um, how important is it for uh, industry? How important is it for these huge um, trillionaires like Jeff Bezos and all that? But how the hell does he get all these goods from Amazon to the people that order them? He, he drives, the trucks all drive on roads that is funded by the public purse. And how does, how, how is all the big industry and the banks and, and, and education and all that, how are they funded by the public purse? Where is all the corruption? Where is all the corruption and the, and, 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 uh, and, and millions made by politicians who trouser cash like there's no tomorrow from the public purse why are millionaires interested in getting involved in politics and becoming prime ministers because they take they rob from the public purse this country is being it's being um uh stripped, stripped. since 1979 it's been asset stripped by the right wing and that again, I take it back to you that the uh, it started with Margaret Thatcher in '79 and allowing um, millionaires to own too much of the media. Yes, this is true. No, I know the the sell off of, of our public utilities was a disaster, really. But then, just just going back only forty years, so God, with the, with the film and 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 the and the narrative of the band during the these kind of eighties, which is kind of uh, obviously the decade we find fascinating. It was an interesting story how you how Kick Out the Tories came about because this this originally started as a as a Christmas song. Okay, not. Not the normal Christmas song, but it was it was quite a nice little sort of part of the the film because it's obviously one of the anthems alongside "Living with Unemployment" that we all loved during that period. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 quite um, interesting that the story of of that song, um, and uh, you know, it was a a, a bunch of chords that I put together, um, I had to come up with a Christmas song because he was playing Christmas Eve at the Triad in Bishop Stalford. And I wanted a Christmas song because it was Christmas. I mean, uh, in those days, it made, it seemed to make perfect sense that we'd play, be playing on Christmas Eve. And it was a big thing. I mean, after we played on Christmas Eve, um, then we didn't think it was such a big thing because actually you don't really want to be out gigging on Christmas Eve. But there you go. At the time, we was young and enthusiastic. It'd be great Christmas Eve. We'd do a gig. 
you know. But anyway, um, I got a few chords together that I was just going to play um, to the to the people on that night, and then I really lazily just put together like four lines or something. It was really simple. Have another, have another lager, have another Marlborough, um, and getting pissed on Christmas Eve, something like that. I mean, it was really, really so little effort put into it, and um, and then that was that, and and because it was lazily put together, um, I never considered it as being uh, anything that I would play more than once. Uh, but then I ended up in another situation where I was like invited to to play out in the open air um in the middle of the town center in harlow uh in support of a, a tuc rally uh, which was entitled kick out the tories so the, i i thought well yeah I, I mean i'd like to play out in the open any any time anyone suggested we'd play i was up for it and the more unusual the better i didn't i didn't care that playing out in the in the winter time, in the open air in Harlow Town Centre was like, yeah, let's do that. That'd be real, really fun. So um, that's what we did. And again, leading up to that, I thought, well, what, I, I need a song for the day because it's a kick out the Tories song and I haven't got anything. I didn't really have any political song or anything. So I thought, what am I going to do in front of that that sort of audience. So I thought, I know, I've got that Christmas song. We're not with Christmas lyrics out of it. And then I'll do some uh, kick out the Tories lyrics to it. So again, you know, it's a simplistic thing. Um, and, you know, it's a, it's a, you know, it's a sloganeering song. And funny enough, I mean, when that really makes us to everybody seem like a sloganeering band, but we didn't do many of those at all. But that was the one that that, that came on quite early, um, and going back to just briefly to talking about my early sort of um, activism days, my my counterculture days, when uh, we were try the New Town Neurotics were trying to get their first single out, as it's uh, detailed in the film. Um, we uh, we 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 got the money together and then sent it off to the manufacturers to be made. And um, we just about managed to get the money. We just managed to scrape the money together. And um, and then Margaret Thatcher came to power and um, and um, increased VAT overnight, which meant that we got a call back from the pressing plant and said, "You need to give us more money." And we said, "Well, we." Why would we do that? We've paid you. We're just waiting for the delivery of the records now. I'm sorry, but the delivery has been made. And because Thatcher has increased the VAT overnight, um, we've got to come back to you and ask for the extra money because of the VAT that that um, is going to be levied on it when it when we send it out to you. And, you know, I, I wasn't really uh, au fait with all of that taxation thing so obviously i was like going this is outrageous this is ridiculous we've paid you the money we gave you the money we gave you the order you shouldn't be coming back to us but there's no there's no point in arguing that that because we weren't going to get our records until they've got the extra VAT. so so we paid that 
and therein lies like the little bomb that went off. There's my counterculture activism element. And then there was red rag, red rag to a ball. Thatcher come to power and we ended up with uh, footing the bill, like everyone would be doing for the next 10 years. So I immediately, it went from being counterculture activism into anti-Tory and being left-wing. That's where it happened, at that point. And as I say, um, it was around that time um, that Attila the stockbroker and I got to know one another. And then, pretty soon after that, the kick out the Tories gig in the town centre, I then uh, scrapped the Christmas lyrics to it and then um, took a few slogans or a few lines to put together to play at that demo on that day. And the idea was that that would actually uh, give me a focus on the day that uh, aligned our lyrics with the theme of the day, and that was Kick Out the Tories. So my first real political song, outright political song, took the title of that protest day um, and, and we played the song. And after that, I was ready to scrap those lyrics again and, and, and use uh, or come up with some more nuanced lyrics because I, I had a, a, a strong feeling of, of wanting to write good lyrics. I didn't really set out to write sloganeering lyrics. I always wanted to to try and create songs which told a story that had an element in it in there where I would play with lyrics or I would hint at things that would leave some ambiguousness in 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 the song, and then that would create uh, a thing where once you've heard the lyrics, it makes you think about them after you've heard the song, and whenever you hear the song, it makes you wonder about what I'm saying. Um, so I was ready to scrap the kick out the Tory lines because they were too simplistic, and then start trying to think of something uh, more sophisticated or had more depth. Um, what I didn't realise is that there are, there are times for that, and there are times when actually you need a simple message because, yes. because otherwise the message can get lost. So this taught me one thing. First of all, was that um, a lot can be carried with a few lines and sometimes that's all you need. And what happened with us was before I could scrap the lyrics to kick out the Tories, whenever we played, people would call for kick out the Tories. And then that ended up something I'd play for uh, 40, 50 years afterwards, still playing Kick Out Tories. Yes. Uh, that's to do with the fact that we've been, uh, you know, been tortured by uh, one Tory uh, regime after another. Uh, um, it's kept that song obviously relevant. And even when Tony Blair... Uh, was the Prime Minister. I, was, I still, we tried to drop the song, but everyone was still calling for it. And then we'd play Kick Out the Tories and everyone, no one felt it was awkward that Labour was in now, it's Tony Blair. Mm. Everyone just to say to me, well, he's pretty much a Tory anyway, so it all still feels really relevant. And so yes. 
And also, just just as, as as we're trucking through the 80s, obviously living with unemployment is the other massive sort of single record that you play, which obviously we have gatekeepers during that period like John Peel and we have the weekly music papers which have phenomenal circulation. Um, and every like city and town has has kind of alternative nights and punk nights. But then you have that incredible bit in the film where you know, we've got that story. And then you go to, to is it Berlin? And then you go to East Berlin and then experience what it's like on the other side of the wall. And that's a kind of a, a fascinating insight into, you know, what what it is to be a punk in, in sort of East Berlin and under kind of um, a Russian regime. Because I did an interview a few years ago with a guy who wrote a book on on. I suppose, East Berlin or East German punks. And he, he told me some sort of amazing stories that they couldn't write their lyrics down and keep them. They'd have to eat the bits of paper because the, the Stasi would be going through everything and they'd go into people's flats and not smash up the house or flat. They would just move the furniture so that people knew that someone had been there. But um, yeah. yes, just enough just to completely yeah, freak yeah. them out. And oh, it was yeah. just... It, so, so, so you used to put um, bits of tape over the door, uh, under mm-hmm. doors. That if you open it, it disturbs it. And you come in, if that's moved, someone's been in. Yeah. But you know, the thing is, I was, by what you've been saying there, it was like um, uh, my songwriting process would have, would have, you know, it's almost exactly the same as that. All of those, all of the 80s releases were all, were never written down on paper by me. Right. I, I was doing, you know, I was working as a gardener and I'd write all the lyrics in my head whilst I was working and never wrote anything down until we went into the studio to record them. And then I'd write them down so that I, I, I you know, I didn't misremember them and they had the right present or past tense parts of it or gender bits or, you know, things like that. I had to make sure that I had them written down so that I didn't misremember them when I was recording them and making sure I had the exact lyrics that I'd originally written them. That's when they got written down. But the rest of the time, they're all written in my head, one lyric after another. Um, I would run the ideas through my head and decide what I wanted without paper. And then by the time I'd written the song, I could remember it easier because I'd written it all in my head. So... I don't definitely have a lot of empathy for that sort of um, Stasi experience, um, but it was interesting because you know we were we were coming from Britain, which were which was um, um, increasingly um, moving to the right, um, becoming a, a bit of a quasi dictatorship, and then we'd go over to East Germany, which was. Um, uh, which was uh, sort of right wing in a left wing sort of way. It was like it was another dictatorship, state capitalism, really. It was uh, another dictatorship, but it had a different set of rules, and it was uh, the rules that um, that that were being enforced by that reg- regime were the ones that were being discarded in Britain, i.e., free education. Everybody had a a home uh, and and everybody had work you know and uh you know it do, it did mean that there were you know there were f- certain freedoms you didn't have but you know 
But that was a freedom of movement to be able to come out of East Germany was obviously um, a, 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 a terrible thing. And we'd go over and, and, and have a great time over there and make friends and really some great relationships with people over there. And then we had to leave them behind. They could never visit us. Yes. And, it's, and it was interesting because I went to East Berlin when I was there in, I think it was 87, visiting various friends and going to a few things. And and we, I had the same experience that you had with the money. You had that East German money and you thought it's kind of worthless and you were just trying to give it to, you know, anybody that you could find. And they were going, no, have you got any dollars? And you thought, no, I've got no dollars. Do you want this money? I'm, I'm going back over the wall, so I don't need it anymore. And they were like, not really. And it's like, mm, put it in the bin then. So it was kind of, it's kind of, it was hard to think you know when you're back in dear old england britain that life was so different in in sort of another country it's it's um it's a bit like Alice through the looking glass or, or rather you know, uh punk rock through the looking glass when we arrived in east germany each time two out of three of us was unemployed and completely brassic completely broke and i, I was working but uh, I was really low-paid um, manual worker, and um, um, and in East Germany, the media was such that it made it seem like um, you know that the West was full of opportunity and no downsides. Um, and you know, part of our raison d'être for going over there was to actually uh, sing our songs and give a counterbalance view of what the west was like how far the freedoms extended um what type of prisons mentally or physically we're put into in our country it was like a balance trying to bring some balance into it and um and and of course you know we were we were things were distorted by the amount of east german marks that we were paid to entice us to, to actually come over there because like you know we're not getting any money that we can use in real life it's all a, a bizarre exercise but they would offer more and more of these east german marks on the basis that they're not actually worth that much but if they keep putting the the amount up and up and up it become a, a figurative exercise. So if you're like, so you've got 10,000 East German marks, you think, oh, no, that's a lot. You know, let, let, let's go over there, earn that money and see what we can spend. But there's not a lot to spend it on, you know. There's not much, was there? That was a bit... No, so, but then we, we'd finish playing there and go back to, uh, to to Britain and we'd have two openings to rub together again. But, we, but you know, the... There was change going on in East Germany, and we was aware of the change. And then, uh, towards the end, when we uh, that our last appearance is there, people were the, the period of glasnost, and people were already disappearing from East Germany and going out the back route uh, through um, Bulgaria. I can't remember the exact uh, uh, countries that people were leaving by. Um, but they people found it easier to get out of East Germany by going through former or at that point still um, communist countries yes. uh, with with um, more lax of border controls and get out that way. 
So yes. at one point we were we, we were like um, in East Germany and we were saying look, you know, we're not talking about um what we're talking about is is you know I mean it's terrible that all the qualified people in East Germany are leaving. Um we because it leaves everyone behind in East Germany with with uh with a lack of doctors and engineers and all sorts of qualified people. And we like to say, you know, now's a good time to actually fight for change in your own country rather than leaving for others. So we was like trying to um trying to uh, uh add some weight to the left wing groups that were saying, look, we don't want to unify with West Germany, but we do want democracy in East Germany, and we want to try and make East Germany democratic and strong. And um, that may have been a pipe dream, but uh, uh, the, looking back on it now, but there was this um, uh, this idea that there could be change in East Germany, and it could be a different type of society um, that was still was that took up the ideas of of um uh, of making sure that people had a home to live in that they had work to go to uh and that they had a health service that would look after them um and not be rapidly right wing like the like britain or um or the rest of the west um and uh you know and that's that's what we we were trying to do but we yes because in the, cause in the film change your own country Yes, I know. It's um, I know we didn't. I never really thought the wall would come down, though. I was still a bit surprised. But then in the film, there's a couple of things that are quite kind of emotional for the for the viewer, and obviously more emotional for the people in the band. Is is kind of when you call it a day, you know, with the the band, but also you know the story of Colin, the bass player, and that's that was quite um, it's quite an amazing viewing, isn't it? Really, because because mm. did you? When you were thinking of the film itself in those early days, had you got any idea of that kind of emotional journey of how the film was going to sort of play out with this kind of the the you know like with every band there's all these kind of honeymoon periods, different drummers, different bass players. There's always one person who holds it all together. The band breaks up, then you know reforms. But then you know the story of Colin, you know, is quite an emotional bit. What was it like for you, sort of, kind of going through that again? Um, well, Colin was, you know, we we didn't we didn't so much pick up like members of the band from different towns or different times or whatever. I mean, initially the whole thing was um, well, it's always been a free piece uh, predominantly, and uh, and Colin, of course, was the first person I managed to persuade that we might be able to get a few chords together and make some music that people would think was was good um but colin was a friend of mine to begin with anyway and we spent uh formative years going to free festivals and um you know and and, and watching uh, some of the greatest bands ever um uh that were going through their formative days and and uh and going through their you know their greatest uh periods we 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 went and saw loads and loads of people um who become the bedrock of uh, of British rock and roll. I mean we, we saw David Bowie and Spiders from Mars for 25 pence in a local 
local theatre, things like that. Um, and, you know, we'd go to festivals and see Mock the Hoople and all of those 70s bands. It was great. So Colin and I um, gelled on that quite a bit as friends. And then when punk happened, I thought, well, you know, there's 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 Colin. He's, he, he had cut all his hair off and spiked it up and he looked brilliant. He looked the part. And I thought, well, we're friends. We've got similar taste in music, both into punk. I'll ask him. And he said, I don't play any instrument. I said, well, how about just playing bass? It can't be that hard, surely. I'm sure you'll be all right. Just say yeah, and we'll give it a go. See how we get on. And he said, all right, then. I said, I've got a bass. I had a really cheap shit bass at home, um, which I either acquired somewhere or other. It was terrible. But I had it, and I thought I'd give him that. So he started off on that, and uh, the pickups had gone and, and the part of it. So it did, didn't really do the lower end of the bass. Uh, but he was obviously inspired at that point um, to get his girlfriend, who was in work, um, to to buy him a um, a uh, Fender Precision copy. Once he got that, he was away. So we, we, you know, in those days, friendships come and go. I mean, people, you know, you don't know who's can who you can have a lifelong friendship with. There's some people you meet, you're really friendly for a while and then you lose touch or you fall out or something like that. You don't really know at that time who's going to become a lifelong friend. And what happened with uh, Colin was he joined my band and then that was the glue that held us together, um, you know, really closely together for 10 years. Um, and then because of the legacy of the band, Colin was never able to just walk away from it. Everybody knew him. Everyone knew it, that he was a bass player in the neurotics. And he had, you know, he 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 shared this similar story that is detailed in the Kickout movie. Um, and so uh, even when we reformed, we'd um, get him to appear and do cameo appearances for a couple of numbers um, initially for a good five years would take him with us just to do the he wasn't really um strong enough health-wise to to be able to rely on him to be the permanent bass player but we could always call on him and say come and join us at these gigs we're doing and that's what we used to do yeah so did the, colin did colin have some underlying health issues then because it sounds like he had lung problem. I'm, you know, I'm a lifelong, life, long life asthmatic since the age of four, and obviously lungs are always one of those things I'm sensitive about. Did Colin have kind of issues, kind of that he was born with, or did he just develop it? Poverty killed Colin. Um, he uh, was, you know, he he was unable to connect. Um. His his personal personality just did not sit comfortably with uh, the world of work. Um, Colin's idea was he was either a rock and roller or he was he was nothing. I mean, he just wanted to be playing. Um, and for for many years, you know, 
uh, he was just on the dole. Um, when he did get work later on, towards he, you know, he, he started doing work uh, just before he got ill and had to leave the band. And he was doing work in, you know, he was working with with kids on a play bus. Um, and he really connected with that. And he would have loved to have, have worked in local government in youth services. Um, he would have loved to have done that. But as soon as he started getting used to that whole idea and began to get a portfolio of experience in youth services, um, the Tories cut all the funding for it and dumped him back on the dole. But he lived his entire life on very little money at all, which meant that he didn't eat or drink very well. Um, and his body never had the nutrition of someone who at least is working to some degree and could afford to buy fairly decent food. He would buy the cheapest food uh, to make his money stretch. And he did have, uh, you know, sort of asthma and um, uh, other ill health issues. They all come together. When you're eating badly, if you've got any weakness within your body, it exacerbates it and it gets worse over the years. So his asthma got worse and he was a smoker. And so the fact that Andy, you know, he spent long periods of time uh, in with depression. So he couldn't really get himself out of his, his flat most of the time. And um, he lived for the neurotics and he lived for, you know, but not having to engage in this craziness called the world of work. He just couldn't, he just couldn't survive in it. He just, it just him and, and, and working nine to five were an, an anathema to, to him. So um, as the years went by, his health or his, his, uh, his, his susceptibility to various health issues got worse and worse. And it must be said, you know, that once um, the band folded in 88, in the, in the uh, 16 years or so between then and when the band reformed, I didn't see a lot of him, but he had uh, increasingly bad health issues during that period. And I didn't know until after he died that he'd had a period in hospital where he nearly died once before. And I, I'd never, no one had ever told me that. He'd kept it secret and he never mentioned it to me. So, yeah, these uh, weaknesses, um, you know, the for people to live not being able to, to afford to eat properly, it takes its toll over the years. And in the end, um, the body starts shutting down. That's what happened with Colin. Yeah, God, it's a it's a kind of a very poignant bit of the film. Did 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 making the film and going through that process did it sort of also help you kind of process your own life and the the musical journey and some of the kind of I know that's a bit of a corny word, but sort of healed any of those kind of kind of things that were never properly sorted. But then going through this process of you know interviewing and then sort of seeing it and hearing other people's stories from their point of view. I just wondered how it made you also reflect, if it made you reflect slightly differently about some of the things that happened that 
that's given you a bit more of insight. Yes, very much so. Fundamentally so. Uh, in, 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 you know, it depends how you approach or look at, uh, at the history that, that is laid before you and what you've been involved with. Because it, we, we're talking about the long span through uh, uh, through Thatcherism and through the Tories to this present day. I can I can sum all that up and my involvement in it in a completely different way. And that is, I can say that um, Thatcher was the best thing that ever happened to me. Uh, it sounds weird to say that, but myself and the tiller the stockbroker and anybody who risk into whatever their their raison d'etre was to fight against Thatcher and fight against capitalism. And without without um, Margaret Thatcher coming to power when she did, without me being where I was, without that, um, it could have turned out very different because I I would I was finding myself before that, before I started playing music, I was getting really despondent because I really couldn't see the meaning of life. I couldn't actually get into the slipstream of meaning of it all. I seemed to be left outside of it, watching it from a distance. And it started to affect me quite a bit in that the, the world of work had no meaning for me because there wasn't any kind of work I could actually commit to from my heart. All of it just seemed like you work to live. You work to get money, and then you spend your money, and then you have to go to work to get more money, and just go around in a circle, never ending with no true meaning, no true aspiration or contentment or gratification that means anything. And um, and I could see myself, I was becoming depressed, and I could see myself becoming um, depressed to a point of it being a problem with me just as I started playing guitar and just as Margaret Thatcher come to power. Now, uh, I would never wish Thatcher on anybody, but I have to sort of recognise the fact that the amount of energy that I've put into this band, what we stand for, and try and stand up for people who haven't got a voice, trying to actually express ideas that don't get through mainstream media about the people who are being crucified by the way that society is structured and by the way that wealth is distributed in this country and globally. Um, if I didn't have that, if I didn't have that opportunity to, add, to, to feel like I was making some sort of impression on the world, that it had some sort of meaning, then I dread to think how long my life would have lasted. So it is very important. And to me, all of this has meaning. Everything that I've done, not only gave me a sense of, of who I am, what I'm aiming for, what is right and what is wrong, but it also encouraged me to create music I'm immensely proud of. And it leads me at a point where I could look back at that and not feel embarrassed by any release or any fucking note I ever played. All of it was found, my situation drew that out from within me and created something 
that I was able to express on stage through just music which vibrated the air, went out to audiences, and they weren't passively um, uh, absorbing some music. It, it inspired, and they they got the passion that I was putting out there and felt invigorated and refreshed to the point that they could go out of the gig afterwards and face another day and face their future knowing full well there were other people who felt like them and believed in what they believed in. And that is so, so important to me and and, and makes me feel that I've achieved uh, as much, this much with my life so far. And it makes me want to look to the future and try to, you know, to do things and build on that from that point on. And it makes me also feel that if anything should happen to me from this point on, I've already got to the point where I've got something to show for it. It's a, it's, it's a sort of fulfilledness that everybody should have. And it's all a part of the journey because I've always wanted people to be in a position where they're not downtrodden, where they can express themselves and um, be inspired by things they come across in the world to make their life meaningful um, and to, you know, to be inspired by being alive and making the, you know, being able to feel, um, uh, feel like it's, um, you know, it's it's a, a magnificent thing, a life. It's inspiring. And the world is a fantastic place. And if we can all come together in this fantastic world and treat each other equally like decent human beings, we have the power to make this a completely different world. And I know that many centuries have gone by and it's still... Un um, unequal and it still has horrors and, and death and torture and things like that but you know um, we need to push forward and keep on trying to become more rounded human beings and, and become less enamoured by the acquisition of stuff and inconsequential possessions and try to bring meaning to one another in our lives. Yes, I yeah, know. So, so, so it's almost if I, sort of it, it reminded me a bit of a. I don't know if you used to watch it. This is quite random. The rise and fall of Reggie Perrin. I think that's when he disappeared yeah. and then went to his own funeral. Did you yeah. feel when you watched the film and you heard people talking about the band and various other members and and the Billy Braggs and Attila and the people from East Berlin? Did it feel a bit like? God, this is, I'm pleased I could hear that now when I still got hopefully years, decades still to do things rather than when I'm dead, six feet under, and then everyone says nice things. Did it feel a bit like, actually, that's given me another little bit of a boost to sort of plow into the, the next period of my uh, life? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, I mean, if you you can have these funerals that happen before you die, but but if you if you go with one of those... It's sort of forcing the point, and it's a bit weird that you're still alive and you've got people coming up and saying he was fantastic and things like that. I mean, it's a bit of a weird, it's a bit of a weird thing to do. And some people do it, 
it's, it's about celebrating the life whilst the person's still around uh, and trying to do that wake thing so that the yes. person who it is for doesn't miss out on it. But it is a bit of a weird concept. But but the film was very much like that. It was like ha having uh, people ex uh, expressing what you know how much they mean to you but you're still alive and and it was um it was a profoundly moving experience because i you know i always imagined that in this sort of situation if i had a film made with about something i did that that i would um uh I, you know that, that it would be totally weird and i wouldn't actually sit in a room with people to watch it because it's me and the film I've obviously seen two or three times to get the, make sure the cut was right and to to see how it was flowing with the director Luke Baker. We'd seen it a few times and then made some changes. Um, that it would be odd and weird for me to be in an audience when I've seen it and they haven't, and uh, I don't know how comfortable I would feel doing that. Actually, at the premiere at the Hundred Club, um, the place was packed. It was sold out, and I envisaged myself sitting in the dressing room until the, the film had finished, and then coming out and talking about it. But actually, I didn't. I stayed in there, um, and then um, what I found out about that the experience was, I was going with I, emotionally. I was following the audience. It sort of psychologically. When when um, you know I, somebody said something funny in there, we all laughed. I laughed, and I <laughs> laughed with everyone else laughing. And when um, when uh, the first image come up of, of me with um, with really long hair back in the hippie days, everyone laughed. You know, it's like oh my god, Steve with hair, and I laughed. And then I could see as we were getting along with going through the film, I was with the audience emotionally. It was carrying me with them as each bit went by. And then when it got to Colin and, you know, and, and uh, Colin's death, um, everyone was getting really emotional. I was getting really emotional. <laughs> and um, once it got to the end, everyone stood up and it got a standing ovation. And it was so, so strong, such a strong reaction to it. Um, that my emotions just completely took over in a way that um, that I, I couldn't envisage. I was, for a good five minutes, I couldn't do anything. My emotions just uh, made me into a completely gibbering wreck. I couldn't speak. I couldn't string a sentence together. I was just so profoundly overwhelmed that I ran away into the dressing room and sat in there for two or three minutes to gather myself because I was just unable to, to uh, communicate everything I felt. It all come out. It was it was almost like uh, a cathartic thing, like a whirling dervisher who, who, who goes through a ritual to actually uh, heighten every sense until you, you get into a... Um, a heightened state and that's i was in a heightened state i was completely 
unable to relate to the world around me. Fortunately, it's very quick. It happened very quickly, and then it subsided enough for me to then carry on because I had a Q and A to do after the film, so it, it just subsided enough for me to get up on stage and then do, you know, be able to string some <laughs> sets together. But even then, it was quite difficult. Someone would ask me a question from the audience, and I was like, you know, I, I was away with 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 ideas that were that were coming too quickly for me to express myself and which is something that i've struggled with over the years anyway because i'm dyslexic and um and ideas I, i've always had trouble getting ideas out of my head and to people in in a, a way that i find satisfactory satisfactory i mean I, i'm actually at my best um creatively and intellectually uh when i'm writing because you know like I said, I wrote all my lyrics in my head initially. That was because I was so poor at spelling because of my dyslexia that I would get angry with myself when I tried to write sentences out on paper and I'd just screw it up and throw it away. Um, and what happened between then and the uh, later part of the neurotics is the word processor and the uh, and PCs. When, the, when computers become... Uh, um, cheap enough for people with very little income like myself at the time to be able to get uh, a PC and then use Word on there. I was liberated by that. So um, so I, I ended up in later years doing all my lyrics on PC, half-folded ideas and then make them, bring them to life on screen using a word processor. Then I can mix things around, change things about. So that was my point of liberation. Yes, uh, amazing. And how and how is the film going to be distributed? Have you had any, you know, because people have tried different methods. Sometimes, you know, you can go to the website, subscribe, you know, pay I don't know seven pound and be able yeah. to access it. How, how what's what's going to be the process of it being more readily available? It will be more readily available. It's just we we haven't actually gone through the um, process of uh, deciding which will be the best way. Um, I think there there are you know there's, there it's uh, the director Luke Baker has been looking into various options via streaming. Um, We've looked at the figures and, and things for for physical media and, and it's sort of really, you know, physical media is just died of death and, and is um, uh, it's sort of disappearing over the horizon. I'm not sure, you know, DVDs or Blu-rays are going to get the re sort of reprieve that vinyl got after we thought it was all dead and finished with. Um, it's a bit difficult to say, but we, you know, we're going to um, one way or another. The uh, we will decide uh, uh, in the near future um, what sort of um, uh, platform that or nature of what the nature of the distribution um, is going to be. So that's not decided yet, but uh, definitely that's an ongoing process that we're still undertaking. Yes, uh, that'd be amazing. And it's has it? It's had its premiere over in um, in uh, um, in the states, um, and the, the theatre that 
that um, showed it in, in, in Minneapolis. It went down so well that they're going to um, they're going to uh, run it again, um, and it's had its premiere in, in in Berlin, which was packed out, um, and also in um, in Australia. Um, that may not have happened yet, but uh, it, that there's a uh, an Australian premiere that's that's taking place very soon. So, um, so it's still, and it's been submitted to various film festivals. So it's still sort of like out there, um, uh, being having premieres in various countries that haven't seen it yet. And in the mean, in the meantime of, the, of that happening, um, we're looking towards, as I said, we're looking to um, how it, we can get it to more eyes and ears. For some reason, I've lost sound. Can you hear me? The sound's gone. I can't hear you. You've just disappeared. I've heard you up until the last last minute. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, I just heard a couple of years, well, this year, actually, I think, I did an interview with the people who've st who um, set up a punk rock museum in Las Vegas. Have you been approached to contribute anything there or to play at the, the Las Vegas punk bowling weekend that takes place every summer? I just wondered if, you know, you mentioned playing or having the film play in Minneapolis. I just wondered if people had started to reach out and um, try and find find you, the band, and any sort of memorabilia they could put in the museum? No, they haven't approached me, um, but I, I've, you know, there has been a um, uh, a desire expressed uh, for us to go out to play the Punk Rock Bowling Festival, um, but we've, um, uh, we've not been in a position to do it. As such yeah but i no i've not had any uh, approach from uh the museum but um that isn't to say they won um they were you know up to recent up until recent times there's been we've had some stuff in the ramones museum um which has had to move uh move its uh location so at the moment it's not currently running but um we've they've had a bit in there uh, regarding the neurotics, because um, because we we covered Blitzkrieg Bop, but changed the lyrics uh, to be more political, um, and they really liked it. And it it turned out that later on they did the very same thing. They started bringing a political element into uh, their lyric writing. So it, there seems to be, you know, this thing where um, I I sort of tongue-in-cheek put some politics in with sort of cretin um uh um imagery that they they used in their in their early uh songs and um and, and then lo and behold later on um uh they started um uh in, integrating politics into their their sort of cretin uh licks Lexography, I can't think of the word. Yes. Yeah. Um, 
and I, I, you know, and that's there seemed to be a connection of influence there, which I expressed to the Ramones Museum, and I had, uh, you know, a sort of uh, gabba gabba hay uh, pendants that um, uh, that were thrown out to us at the uh, um, it, it the um, uh, Rainbow Theatre in December 1977. Um, we saw the New Year in there with the Ramones, which eventually come out as the It's Alive album. And I said to the people at the Ramones Museum um, that I've got these pendants, so I, I gave them them on a permanent loan for the museum. And then I also said about this connection in which um, I'd written Blitzkrieg, I'd written new lyrics for Blitzkrieg Bop, which in, involved uh, some political element in it regarding cruise missiles. And then a few years later, um, uh, the Ramones write Bonzo goes to Pittsburgh, uh, where they they have this political element into that into Ram the Ramones type of music. And I said there, and and I knew that the Ramones had liked Blitzkrieg, my version of Blitzkrieg Bob, because they were interviewed by a friend of mine who was uh, interviewing them for a magazine when they come over to play in um, uh, and done a they've done a UK tour and they played in Manchester and he got to interview them and he said what have you have you heard the uh um the version of British Creek Bop by Newtown Neurotics which they would have done because part of the deal of being I had to check that I was able to change the lyrics with it with that publisher and um uh in approaching them to make sure they were okay with me doing that, they said, yes, of course, two provisos. One is you don't get any money for it because it's really the work of the Ramones. That's mm. okay, fine. And two, um, that you send us copies to the boys. So I know they got them. And then I had this interview. Uh, I heard of this interview where they were asked about it and they said, we, yeah, they thought the, our version of it was really cool. Next thing you know, they're bringing politics into their their songwriting. So, yes, there you go, there you go, Bonzo. We haven't even mentioned Ronald Reagan, have we? Did you? I mean, one of the other kind of political characters during that eighties period, when you were still going, was kind of very much a part of that. I think the Red Wedge movement, but not sure. The Red, the Red Squins, the Redskins, who did yeah. one album, neither Washington nor Moscow, and obviously Christine is one of the most elusive characters. Did you ever cross paths with the Redskins? Oh yeah, we 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 had a lot to do with each other. I mean, we we um. Uh, we were both on CNT Records. We signed CNT Records at the same time. Uh, we we uh, met up at, um, at the cut for oh the mastering for the uh, for uh, Lev Bronstein and um, uh, Peasants Army. That's coupling on, on the Redskin single, and we did Cantoris Mindless Violence um, and mastered it. In the same session, we were also um, uh, playing a lot of gigs together, minus benefits um, and things like that. Um, also, uh, Christine worked as uh, for the enemy as Exmoor, and had, um, uh, went on to 
do a review of our Beggars Can Be Choosers album. He also um, submitted quite a few live reviews to the enemy of uh, Neurotics Geeks. So we had a lot to do with one another, yeah. Yes, it's one of those, the most, you know, he's one of those characters who've just sort of managed to to brilliantly disappear from everything, hasn't he? So I just wondered if, um, when was the last time you saw him or spoke to him? Um, it's a long time ago. And um, I've, 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 you know, I've had this sort of, um, this sort of, uh, conversation quite a few times um he's basically um disappeared and the nature of his disappearance is is moot it's not known a lot of people seem to think that uh, that he just withdrew from uh public life and is doing something or other of which um uh we're not aware of but he's obviously he turned his back on music. He's walked away from the Redskins. He worked for some time in Paris or something. He's seen occasionally in Britain, but nobody knows anything about it. So um, uh, the other theory is that actually he's not in in past years. He's not been very well. And is unable to interact with the world. Um, but there is no definitive about whether he's voluntarily decided not to engage with anything to do with politics or music, or his issues with his health are such that um, uh, that he's unable to in, to be involved in music. Or politics. I don't know which one is true because there's too little information um, around regarding that. Um, but I, I do find it uh, perplexing and astonishing that for someone who held such strong beliefs uh, in the 80s regarding politics and being such a you know um, uh, a um, such a, uh, a, a, um, a strong proponent of, of, of the music that uh, the Redskins made, um, that there would be um, nobody to see hide the hair of him for all these years. Because, I mean, um, the more the merrier regarding the fight back and the neurotics have re-engaged uh, with kicking out the Tories since they... Um, uh, they reformed in about, I mean, 2006. We come back to fight against the Tories as a band, and we'll be fighting them until they're no longer there anymore. And we've, you know, we've kicked them out. Um, so it's frustrating because, you know, obviously um, ourselves and Bragg are still fighting the good fight. We're still trying to get the Tories out. We're still. Uh, expressing ideas to try and uh, make this world a, a better place, to express ideas that don't get into mainstream media. Uh, we're fighting our corner still, and the more the merrier. So it's been a bit of a disappointment, to be honest, that uh, for the neurotics not to have the Redskins stand alongside us. 
Um, but there you go. I mean, I don't have the information or any information that, that gives me an idea of what's happened, apart from the fact that nobody sees him anymore. Yes, no, it's kind of one of those curious kind of eggs. So you brought an album out last year, which is obviously still... Yes. So that came... Do you have any plans for... What's your plans for 2024? What's the next kind of chapter in the band and and um, what you're planning to do? Um, well, if you want to sort of like... come, We're, we're, we're sort of like... Um, strongly considering our next move 2024 is to um, re-record and re-release Kikatatories that's our main thing um, Kikatatories is obviously going to come into focus as we lead up to the next general election but because it was written as I said earlier in a sort of oh I just put these lines together very quickly to play at a kick out the Tories um, um, protests in the middle of Harlow Town Centre, I didn't put a lot of um, consideration into what those lyrics were saying. And for the most part, they have stood the test of time for me. But there is a gender imbalance in there which needs to come out. And um, I don't think, you know, I think if we want to kick out the Tories to resonate in 2024 it's not going to do it if i'm singing a line that says uh um let's kick out the tories the rulers of this land for they are the enemy of the british working man and that that is a gender imbalance i mean it's it's uh, the tories are the enemies of anybody work in work or not male or female Gender, we need something, I need a new version of Kick Out the Tories that takes that gender out of it, basically. Um, and, you know, we think it's probably a good time to go into the studio, record a 2024 version of it, and put that lyric right so that we can continue it as being a song that resonates with everybody without excluding women without excluding people who aren't working to include everybody basically yes wow that's yes and, it's going to be and do you have any dates so you got any festivals that you might be lined we're up doing, for? we're doing uh rebellion um next year um and um I, i'm talking to them at the moment um regarding uh the film being shown as well at the Birmingham festival i mean the Thousands of people attend that festival each year, and it's um, a good opportunity. Um, should we um, be um, able to do it to show the film there too? Fantastic, fantastic! Yeah, there, there's going to be some dates, obviously, in 2024. I mean, the thing is, we'll be leading up to the uh, uh, general election. Um, we are in the process of of uh, initial conversations about getting out and, and doing live dates for next year. So there is that. There is kick-out Tories. Um, there are, you know, there may be, uh, we, we're talking about kick-out Tories plus some other material that's not been released yet coming out. The ideas are all uh, at the moment being uh, bandied about, but um, 
we need further discussion to see what we want to do. I mean, I'm still writing. I'm I'm still um got I've got material new material on the go. So it's just a matter of you know what we do with it. I think. Yes, amazing. Well, look, thank you ever so much. And I have to say, I really loved the film. I thought it was just stunning. And um, well, so, thank you. So, yeah, I mean, I think that Luke, Luke Baker, the director, has done a fantastic job. And um, you know, if it, it, it works great about it, is it tells their story. It tells an interesting story. And and it, it's you know it's really although I do have a life outside of the neurotics I mean it's a major stream in my life and it tells my story as well and there's not many people who get that opportunity so um, you know I am deeply deeply uh, um, uh, moved by the fact that one Luke Baker put so much time and energy and his talent into making it. And secondly, in the way that it tells a story and takes you on a journey and um uh and and does exactly what a good interesting documentary film should do. Yes. Amazing. No, it's it was it was great. And it was just um so many little bits about it which was which was fascinating. But yeah, well look, fingers crossed it all comes out because I'm sure thousands of people are gonna to want to watch it. And um yes. Yes, kind of learn more about the band. I think that's the thing. You can learn a lot more about the band than you probably Yeah, I think would there have. was a lot of our history that was under the radar. This is the thing. We've not not really had a lot of exposure in the media other than our music. And even that has been hit and miss as to, you know, how often we get played on the radio and things like that. And, um, and you know, the fact that we, as I said, you know, we didn't really have any really any rock videos yes. uh, um, and then we went into full-blown documentary by the time now we I mean what happened during the documentary of course is we we had uh cognitive dissidence album come out and we took a single from it um climate emergency and then we ended up making the rock video that we'd been wanting to do in the first place uh, the uh, the video for climate emergency, uh, which is you know finishes the film off. So um, we got to where we wanted to be in the end, but we went from not very much uh, media profile to everything at once. <laughs> it's always the way. But look, thank you ever so much, Steve. This has been amazing. No and look, My best pleasure. of luck for the future. But like, really grateful for your time for this. This That's has been right. great. And if you want, I, I'm, always happy to, I'm always happy to, to talk about uh, stuff in neurotics too. But of course, the, the film is really special, so it sort of makes me eager, even more eager to, yes. to get involved with anybody you know who, who wishes to engage with me. Yes. Well, look, best of luck, and I hope I hope it gets lots more attention. And uh, when it does get a release, yes, I'm sure that um, people will want to, yes get your back catalogue but anyway look and and hopefully you get to record some new material next year as well so that'd be yeah. good anyway yeah. look i'll let you go but thanks right. again for this take care and Thank you. thanks very much take care see you later i'm gonna hit the end bye bye and that dear listener is the end of the interview. You could have guessed that. Uh, massive thank you to Steve Druitt for giving me the time for that. Talking about his life in the band and much, much more. The film is titled Kick Out. 
I will put a link in the notes below so you can at least see the trailer and then hopefully wait for it to be available from, I don't know, streaming sites and special, I don't know, art, art cinemas. Anyway, this has been the C86 Show. This is David East. So if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. It's there. Um, also, these interviews have all been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.